Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. The rest of you, please open in your Bibles to the book of 1 John, near the end of the New Testament. If you don't know where 1 John is, just go to Revelation and turn back a few pages. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 15 to 17 today. Uh, yeah, many thanks again to the tech team, particularly I think I saw Scott Jordan and TJ Dudley scrambling and working hard back there. Um, I think those guys probably are uh, to thank for restoring uh, the PowerPoint. So thank you guys for all your work. Thank you uh, to all of you for your patience. You know, the church operated for many centuries without PowerPoint, so it wouldn't have been the end of the world. We could have done this without PowerPoint, but nonetheless, it's good to have PowerPoint back. Before we get started here, um, <clears throat> we have a missions conference coming up that I want to make sure that you all know about. It's in two weeks, um, March 16 through 18, so not next weekend, but the weekend after that. And this is something we do every year at New Life. In the past, we've done this in February. We've moved it back just a month uh, to March. And um, um, this is part of our effort to raise awareness about missions here at New Life. Uh, to generate some enthusiasm about the task that we've been called to do as a church, which is to take the gospel to all the nations, to all the four corners of the earth. And so we've been blessed to support a number of missionaries, and two of those missionaries will be with us on this weekend, the Ogles, who are in East Asia. They used to be a part of this congregation. And um, the Files, John and Sarah File, I'm not sure if their family will be with the Files or not, but um, uh, the Files are in Tokyo, Japan. And so there's just two aspects to this missions conference. Friday night we have a family dinner starting at six o'clock and then we'll begin hearing presentations from those missionaries at seven. A kids conference also at seven o'clock so the children will uh, leave and Jessica has prepared some things for the kids to do during that time. Uh, family dinner, we'll take a free will offering for, for that but we're gonna have uh, a number of different um, kinds of food there, some Japanese, some Chinese, and some American food, and so uh, we would love to have you come and dine with us that night. And then uh, nothing's happening on Saturday. In the past, we've done some Saturday things, but we're just going to uh, give our missionaries uh, some time to relax and kick back on Saturday, and then on Sunday, we'll have a pitch-in breakfast at 9 a.m., and during the discipleship hour, the missionaries will uh, be speaking to us again. We'll split up into men's and women's groups and spend most of the time just having a casual conversation with the missionaries and praying for them. So that'll be between 9 and 10.15 and then of course the worship service at 10.30 and um, we're going to devote our attention during that service to the task of missions. We have a man named Owen Tarantino from Mission to the World or MTW, that's the missions agency of our denomination. And so Owen will be here bringing the word to us and telling us a little bit about what MTW is doing uh, in the world. So we're looking forward to this. Um, thanks missions team for all your preparations. Please come out um, to these events and bring friends. You can bring people who maybe have never been to the church and maybe have an interest in what's going on worldwide uh, regarding the spread of the gospel, so mark that on your calendar. I hope you can join us. All right, um, we are, oh yeah, by, what, by the way, I've got 
this is a book I've been working through here. Um, it's very short. It's called Missions, and it's by Andy Johnson, and I think it's been just excellent. Um, it, it's written from the perspective of what a local church can do um, in terms of getting involved in missions and the, the proper way to do that. It's been very helpful to me. It's very practical, very inspiring. I would recommend this to you, Missions by Andy Johnson. Okay, our ta- or, uh, text today is uh, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Um, you know, there are some things that uh, Christians have come to be known for. There are certain kind of cliches, um, kind of images that come to mind to, to people about Christians. And generally, they're um, articulated in terms of things that Christians don't do. You know, stereotypes like, you know, if you're a Christian, here's what's true of you. You, you don't dance. You don't smoke, you don't drink, you don't go to movies, you don't listen to certain kinds of music, or as the, the phrase goes about Christian guys, they, they don't um, drink or dance or chew or go with girls who do, as is often said. And the idea there is that Christians don't do these things because these things that I've mentioned, they're all connected with worldliness. They're all considered to be worldly things and there's a concern about being corrupted or influenced by the world. And that's a very real concern, and you'll see that here in just a moment. But what's happened is that the church has kind of responded to this idea of worldliness with some extreme measures. So on the one hand, you have like the Amish church, and you might know that the Amish have entirely removed themselves from the world because they're concerned about the corrupting influences of the world, and so they have their own isolated community, and they're not connected to the world in any way whatsoever. And then on the other extreme, you have some among the mainline liberal churches who don't have quite the same concern about the world. In fact, they think that in order to reach the world, we have to be like the world, and so they've been almost totally assimilated into the world. They just don't really see the danger or the concern. And so all of this is in response to this concept of worldliness. And there's a lot of confusion about actually what worldliness is. A guy named J.C. Ryle said, for some, they have too much religion to be happy in the world. Others have too much world to be happy in their religion. And a lot of this is based on a confusion about what actually is worldliness, or here's the way I'm uh, describing it today, what in the world is worldliness? And that's what our text here in 1 John 2 um, concerns. We're returning to our sermon series on uh, 1 John that you may know. We're just going to pick up where we left off last time. My thanks to Pastor Brian who preached the last couple of Sundays in my absence. Mary and I have been away on vacation, had a, a wonderful time. And uh, thanks, Brian, for bringing the word to the people here in my absence. But we're going to pick up here, again, where we left off last time, three weeks ago, with verses 15 through 17. What we have here is the very first command in the book of 1 John, and it concerns this issue of worldliness. So let's please stand for the reading of God's word, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. The word says... Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Father, please, by your spirit, open our eyes to behold the truth and the goodness and the grace that is in this passage of scripture for us now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. So as we seek to answer this question, what in the world is worldliness, we're going to look at a command in this passage, an explanation, and a promise. So first of all, let's consider the command that you just heard, very clear, do not love the world. Look at verse 15, here's the command, do not love the world or the things in the world. He goes on to kind of unpack that in the rest of this verse and says something that actually is kind of startling and really should get our attention. If anyone loves the world, he says, the love of the world is not in him. In other words, you cannot be a person who loves God, loves the Father, that is a Christian, a genuine Christian. You cannot be a person with an affection for the things of God and at the same time have affection and love for the things of the world. These things cannot inhabit the same place at the same time. That's what John is saying. When one is there, the other is not. They displace each other. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And by um, inference, if the love of the Father is in this person, the love of the world will not be in that person. And in fact, if there's one way that you want to decrease your love for the world, the best way to do that is to increase your love for God. And if you find your love for God beginning to cool off, it could very well be because you're falling more and more in love with the world. So that's a startling statement, isn't it? I mean, that's a challenge because we all experience, I think, kind of a natural attraction to the things of the world. And what John is saying is the Christian is a person whose heart does not go after those things on a permanent and constant basis. Now, it's important, though, that we think about what we mean by the world. We we need to clarify this because that is actually a fairly complex term. I mean, if we think about the world... What's in the world? Well, people are in the world. So is John saying we shouldn't love people? I mean, we think of the world, we think of, uh, you know, mountains and sunshine and and dogs and cats. I mean, food, all those things are in the world too. So are, are we not to love those things? And complicating this matter further is if you think about John 3.16, I mean, the most well-known verse in the Bible. What does it say? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So John 3.16, by the way, the same John that wrote this passage we're looking at here today, tells us that God so loved the world, but this passage is telling us, no, we're not supposed to love the world. So what's going on there? Why is it that God can love the world and we can't? Well, again, we got to think about what does the Bible mean or what does this particular passage mean when it refers to the world? So uh, let me first of all just kind of get some wrong answers out of the way. What, what is John not commanding here when he says, do not love the world? One thing he's not saying 
is this. He is not commanding us to resent the world. This is not a command to hate the physical material world in which we live. Because all throughout the scriptures we see a number of passages that affirm the goodness of the natural creation. Genesis chapter 1, God creates all things. You get to verse 31 and it says God has created everything and has pronounced it all very good. Everything in the world is good. The material world is good. Look at First. Timothy 4, Paul says this, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. That's an overwhelming affirmation of the goodness of the physical world and the gifts that God has given us. And in the Psalms, we'll see these repeated celebrations of the goodness of the physical world. Here's Psalm 104, speaking to God. God, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The world is filled with all of these wonderful treasures, these beautiful things to enjoy. God is gracious and he wants us to enjoy our life and enjoy our life in the world. A guy named Michael Whitmer says it like this, the world that John is warning us about is not the universe of beautiful things, but the sinful manner in which we often respond to what attracts us. So we'll talk a little more about that, but that's kind of giving us a, a hint at what John is referring to here. So um, we shouldn't read this passage and, and think, oh, you know, I've got to be Amish because it says don't love the world. And how can I not love the world except by just fleeing from it? No, that's not what John has in mind. So that brings us to the second thing. It is not a command to retreat from the world either. When John says, do not love the world, he's not saying the world is, is all evil and filled with wickedness, and so therefore the best thing for you, Christian, is to run for the hills, to find some subculture community to kind of hide yourself in, in, in the mountains somewhere, and, and just remove yourself from the influence of the world. That, that's not what this means, and here's how we know this. Because, again, going back to the Gospel of John, the same John that wrote this passage also included this. In the gospel, quoting Jesus, Jesus here is praying to the Father, and he says this, Father, I do not ask that you take them, that's his disciples, that's you and me, I did not ask that you take them out of the world. Jesus doesn't want us out of the world. Here's what I'm asking, Father, that you keep them from the evil one while they're in the world. They are not of the world, I mean, we're, we're different from the world, just as Jesus is not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. In the same way that the Father sent Jesus into this world to save and love and redeem it, in the same way Jesus is sending you and me into the world. That there's no way we can read the New Testament and justify this idea of retreat from the world. Now you might ask, you keep talking about in the world, in the world, what do you mean? What, what is that? Well, it, it's just doing ordinary things. It's like going to college and getting a degree, studying, taking tests, writing papers, and developing a skill. That, that's being in the world. It's 
It's like going to work and getting there on time and doing the best job that you can and glorifying God and the way you are honest and hardworking in your tasks. That's living in the world. It's, it's relating to your neighbors and saying hello to them and having them over whether they're Christians or not and loving them, serving them, hanging out with them. It's paying attention to what's going on in the world and politics and culture understanding what what is going on with gun control and what's going on with immigration i mean just paying attention just watching those things that's what it is to be in the world the bible does not call christians to somehow block all that stuff out jesus says i've sent them into the world now that puts us in a very unique tension as Christians, doesn't it? I mean, because here's this command, don't love the world, but at the same time, Jesus says, but I'm sending you into it, into the thing that you're not supposed to necessarily love. You're gonna be immersed in it, but don't love it at the same time. And I'll just acknowledge that is not easy. But that's the task that we're called to as disciples of Christ. We are sent into the world and at the same time, called upon to do battle with it, to, to push it out, to, to keep ourselves from being overly influenced by it. It's like a boat. You know, think of a boat. How does a boat function the best? It's when it's in the water, right? A boat is meant to be in the water, but once the water gets in the boat, it starts to sink. And that's a good picture of the way Christians are supposed to be. We function best when we're in the water, that is when we're in the world, because God is calling us to take the love of Christ and the love of the gospel into the world. But as soon as the world starts to get into us, we start to sink. We start to lose track of things. We start to get confused. This is why some people say, and I think it's, it's well said that one of the reasons why the church very often has such little influence on the world is because there's so much world in the church. In so many ways, the church is just drawn by the attractions of the world. There's, in so many cases, the church taking its cues from the world. In so many cases, the church wants to see God as some kind of a cosmic therapist who exists only to make us feel better about ourselves. That's a worldly idea, not a Christian idea. Or churches that look at a worship service as if it's primarily about entertaining people and making them laugh and giving them a show. That, that's from the world. That's not from the scriptures. Or this idea that, that we are isolated individuals and the only concern we ought to have is our own personal goals and aspirations, absolutely independent of the community of faith. That's a, that's a worldly idea. Or this idea that what's right and wrong and what is morally upright depends upon popular opinion, what most people believe. That's what's right. So many people taking their cues from the mass of popular opinion. That's not a Christian idea. That's a worldly idea. And in many cases, there is so much water in the Christian boat that the church barely has any influence whatsoever because there's no difference between the church and the world. I, I read this quote. I don't know who said it, but person said, one of the things wrong with Christians today is that nobody wants to kill them anymore. 
Why would that person say that? The idea is that that Christians are so much like the world, that Christians offer so little resistance to the ways of the world that the world is perfectly comfortable with them. And there are some in the church that think that's our responsibility to get the world to like us. But that's not what this passage seems to be saying. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So that's the command. But let's go further and think about this explanation. Um, What actually is worldliness? I gave you just a couple of hints. Really, I told you more about what the world is not. Um, So let's think about what worldliness really is. Here's the explanation in verse 16 that John gives us. Now, notice this explanation, how it is not referring to an external reality. Do you notice this in verse 16? What, what John is referring to are internal matters, desires, lusts. In, in John's mind, this, this is worldliness. It, it's not that there's this evil world out there corrupting our good, pure, innocent hearts. It's the fact that we have corrupt hearts that corrupt a good world as it was created by God. And so watch what John does here. He gives us three things in verse 16 that explain what worldliness is. And the first is the desire of the flesh. For all that is in the world, verse 16, first of all, the desires of the flesh. So what does that mean? Well, the flesh refers, in this case, to just our bodily desires, our physical cravings. So worldliness is being absolutely enslaved to our physical desires, whether that be the desire to eat that would lead to gluttony, um, the desire for sexual immorality, that is practicing sex outside the bonds, uh, the bounds of God's restrictions in his word, that would be abuse of alcohol and tobacco and other substances that would even entail oversleeping, just allowing your body to be your boss. That's worldliness, being enslaved to your physical cravings. Now, be clear, there's nothing wrong with food, there's nothing wrong with sleep, there's nothing wrong with sex as it's practiced, again, according to God's revealed will. Those things in themselves are not a problem. The problem is our over-desire for these things. The problem is that these things become our lords and our masters. And we become their obedient slaves. And that's the first example of worldliness that John gives us, the desires of the flesh. But then secondly, John talks about the desire of the eyes. Verse 16 again, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes. Here's how a commentator put it. I think he just summed it up really well. A guy named C.H. Dodd who says, what, what does he say? What, what? There he is, okay. He says, the tendency, this is the desire of the eyes, the tendency to be captivated by the outward show of things without inquiring into their real value. That's being subject to the desires 
of the eyes. We have things presented to us. They look so good on the outside. We're drawn to them, but we never ask the question about whether this is actually good for me. We never ask the question about whether this is going to help me increase in godliness. We never ask any questions about the inherent value of the thing. We're just drawn to it because it looks good and we want it. I mean, our culture, isn't it true, is constantly placing things before our eyes. Every day, all the time, appeals are being made to your eyes, trying to reel you in through advertising. I mean, on your smartphone, you know, you can't even play a game of words with friends without getting bombarded by advertisements. Constantly, these appeals being made, trying to draw you in. Just think of the appeal of the cell phone, how, how it's so easy for your eyes to be glued to the thing. It's hard to turn away, isn't it? That's, that's the lust of the eyes. Now, is there anything wrong with a cell phone? No. But when we lust for it, we're driven by it, we can't turn away. I mean, think of the mesmerizing effect of TV. Isn't it just so easy to sit down and turn on the television and you can't look away? It's entrancing. One thing after another, before you know it, hours have gone by and there you are watching television. The lust of the eyes. Now, th there's, you know, there's a lot of good things to watch on TV. There's a lot of good movies to watch. And again, I, I know that there's this cliche, oh, Christians, they're the ones who will never watch a movie. They're the ones who... Uh, you know, never are involved in culture. And, and I think it's been good that lately Christians have been more engaged in culture, but I think this idea of, of uh, TV and movies um, being, um, you know, a worldly influence has gotten to the point in some places where it's been kind of laughed at and kind of dismissed. And, and, and we think, you know, look, I, I live by grace. I mean, I, I can, I'm not under the law anymore. You know, I, I can exercise my freedom as a Christian, and I can watch whatever I want. Now, I, I'm not going to tell you what to watch and what not to watch, but friends, you got to be careful about what you put before your eyes. I mean, particularly with the plethora of shows that are available to us now on Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and as far as I know these things don't even have a rating system so sometimes you can watch a show you have no idea what you're getting into but but some of these shows do nothing but glorify the desires of the flesh it, it is not going to help you fight against worldliness to be watching certain things and you need to be discerning about that you need to know where to draw the line I'm not going to tell you where to draw the line. I have places where I feel like I have to draw the line. Your place might be different than mine, but there ought to be some place for you to draw the line, Christian. You shouldn't just be open to just watching anything. <laughs> Think discerningly about this. I mean, the Oscars are tonight, I know, and there's um, a movie that's been nominated for Best Picture. It's called Call Me By Your Name, and I haven't seen the movie. Maybe some of you have. I don't know. You know, I hesitate to comment on it because I haven't seen it, but I know enough about it that it's about a romantic relationship between a man and a teenage boy. That's what the movie's about. It's up for best picture. If you watch TV tonight, you're going to be hearing about it. You're going to be hearing about how wonderful that movie is. I just can't, I just can't imagine why a Christian would want to watch that. 
I sound like my father. I, I can't believe I'm saying this. I, I want you to know, I'm, I'm a person who's very open. I watch a lot of different kinds of movies. <laughs> and I've watched movies that I, I regret. You know, some movies that I, that I shouldn't have, have seen. Um, I, I'm a supporter of cultural engagement and good art. I love that. But there's got to be a line to be drawn. John is warning us here about the lust, the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh. And the world just promotes that stuff. It just wants to push it down your throat at every chance it gets. And you gotta know when to say no. And then the last thing is pride in possessions. Sorry, I know you're hearing me breathing here. I guess this is too close to my nose, maybe. The pride of possessions. Um, is the third thing in verse 16 that makes up worldliness. Now notice this doesn't say having possessions. It doesn't say desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and having things, or buying things, or having possessions, or having a house, or having a car. No, it's pride in these possessions. That's that's the issue. It's that you feel so self-satisfied. You feel like you're so much better than other people because of the size of your house or the number of cars you have or the clothes that you wear, the possessions that you have, the things that you've bought and acquired are feeding into your pride, your accomplishments. You're driven by this desire to outshine other people, get ahead of other people by the number of things you've accumulated. That's worldliness. Maybe you've seen this ad from Apple that's been on TV a lot, I think during the Olympics where there's all these selfies that are being shown and in the background are the words of Muhammad Ali and at the end of the ad, Ali says, my only fault is that I don't know how great I really am. That's pride, friends. Uh, maybe not necessarily pride of possessions, but I mean, Ali was a pretty famous person, famous boxer, by the way, from I think like the 70s. Some of you might not know about Muhammad Ali. But um, that ad just seems to promote pride, just self-centeredness, self-glorification, which John tells us is an aspect of worldliness. So here's how I'm going to define worldliness after all of this talk here so far. Worldliness, rather than being things in creation, is actually the desire, a heart desire, to participate in and enjoy that which is in rebellion against God and his revealed will. A desire to enjoy it, to relish in it, to participate in it, and it often manifests itself in a a state of affairs where sin begins to look normal and righteousness begins to look strange. Whenever you have that going on, you know that worldliness has taken root. So here's the difference between 1 John 2.15 and John 3.16. John 3.16 says, God so loves the world that he sent his only begotten son into the world to save it, to redeem it, to overcome the forces of worldliness, to destroy the devil and his work. That's the way God loves the world. God doesn't love the world to participate in its rebellious ways. That's what 1 John 2.15 is telling us not to do. The difference is that love is being used in different ways here. 
the love that we are being commanded not to participate in is a desire to join with the world. John 3.16 tells us a God who loves the world because he hates the sin that is being committed, and yet he's so full of grace and mercy, he's willing to give his son to die for those who have been in rebellion against him their whole lives. He gives his son to die, to be risen from the dead, to overcome the powers of worldliness. That's what John 3.16 is talking about. Very different than the kind of love here in John, 1 John 2.15. So that's an explanation of what the Bible means by the world. We need to move on to the third thing. And that is this promise. What will become of the world. Verse 17. Very clear. Here's what's going to become of the world and its rebellious ways. It will fade away, friends, and disappear. Verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world is passing away along with its desires. These things in the world that draw us so compellingly, these things that captivate us so much, these things that we think are so urgently needed, these things that have such great appeal to our lusts, will one day, friends, seem to you to be entirely irrelevant. It will have no interest to you whatsoever. You will one day wonder, what was the appeal? Why did I long and lust for those things? That day is coming. The world is passing away. Not the physical world, that is the world in its rebellion against God. That's passing away. The day is coming when Jesus is going to come back. He's going to defeat fully, decisively, and completely all the ways of the world. And that's when the world will have finally passed away. But in the meantime, we have to believe this promise as we fight against the world, knowing that the promises of the world are empty and void And there are some who have come to know that. This is Jim Carrey, the actor. He said this, I wish everyone could experience being rich and famous so they'd see it wasn't the answer to anything. The 77s Christian band from the 80s, I guess, they wrote a song about this passage. And the chorus goes like this, The lust, the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life drain the life right out of me. That's what a pining after the world and its desires will do. Its appeal is limited, its satisfaction is fleeting, and its reward is always ultimately disappointing. But what will last? What will last? That's what we see at the end of verse 17. Whoever does the will of God, whoever does the will of God abides forever. What what is that? What is it to do the will of God? The first step to doing the will of God is to acknowledge your sinfulness before God, to acknowledge that you have been a person who has been enslaved to worldly desires, to just bring that before God and be honest about it and say, God, I have loved the world my whole life, but I am sorry for that. I recognize that that is not your desire for me. I confess it as sin, and I believe in Jesus and take him right now as my Savior. I look to him and his shed clean of all my sins and to deliver me from worldliness. That's the first step to doing the will of God. And then <coughs> giving yourself, living your life in submission to the authority of God's word. 
Living for his glory, not your own. Living more by faith in what scriptures promise rather than by sight, rather than by what you see in this physical world. Giving yourself to that life. That's what it is to do the will of God. And the promise here is that that person will never go out of style, will never become outdated, will never expire, and will never be forgotten. The person who does the will of God will only grow in stature throughout all eternity. And that's what 1 John is promising us here. <clears throat> this is the choice before us all, friends. It's, it's the choice to give yourself to the world or to give yourself to Christ. And as the old hymn says, we only have one life, it will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let that be true of you. Let that be true of me as we battle the worldliness that is set before us every day. Father, we thank you that you speak truth to us. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would deliver us from our enslavement to the world. We thank you that in Jesus we have a Savior who has overcome the world and has promised that we will do the same in him. Thank you for that promise in Jesus' name. Amen.